Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, everybody, and it's great to have you with us for another episode of This Is Your Journey, brought to you by the team at Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Today, we have the company of a VFL player turned sports scientist turned resilience expert. David Butterfant played a pair of games at Richmond in the 80s, but it was off the field that he made his mark, initially at North Melbourne and then Carlton and Collingwood, where he applied cutting-edge strategies, including the pioneering of high-altitude training to improve player preparation and performance. David has also worked with the Australian Olympic team. He's also an author who holds a PhD in exercise physiology. David, a huge welcome to you, and thanks a lot for joining us. No, you're welcome, Sam. Good to be on the show. Thank you. To be honest with you, right off the top, I actually really wrestled with how to introduce you. You've worn so many hats in your life. How how would one describe your title? <laughs> well, it's interesting, mate. I've, kind of, I've, I've spent a lot of my time in sport and thoroughly loved it. It's kind of interesting. It's kind of like I'm, originally, I was a teacher, the PE teacher, and I didn't stay there too long, so... I'd have to say it's probably more in the coaching kind of area, really. Yeah. I'm always coaching people, helping them to facilitate a shift in growth in them. So, yeah, it's probably more like a coaching teacher type of role, I'd imagine. So most listeners, I guess, will remember you from your time in the AFL, and particularly at mm. Collingwood, where you formed that long and successful union with the coach, Mick Malthouse. Well, and we will get yeah. to that. But among the 18 or so uh, people who perform your old job uh, across the competition mm. at the moment, what level mm. of anxiety would they feel on the eve of a new season after a long pre-season? <laughs> can, you, can you take yourself back oh, easily enough? Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, you always hope that you know that they go into the season you know, well-prepared you know, from a holistic point of view. And and they and they you know they, they can go through the year you know it, uh, with with some growth. But you know the vagaries of sport, some of these things come at you. You know you get injuries, you know form, and those type of things. It doesn't always pan out. That's the uncertainty. So there is some kind of trepidation, I suppose, going into the season. But it's the excitement. I suppose that's the great thing about sport is that that uncertainty really. So mm. there's apprehensiveness there because you want players to perform and perform well. Um, you want the coaches, you want the club to do well. So basically, you know, there's a fair bit of weight. But you can't get too caught up and thinking what the outcome's going to be. You just got to really stick to the kind of the micro behaviours, the processes that you got to back yourself into. That uh, that's going to determine, you know, the actual the you know, the outcomes. Now, I termed you a resilience expert off the top. So mm. let, let's come mm. to the here and now. What goes into becoming an expert in resilience? And, and tell me, as we sit here in. February of 2024. Uh, what is Resilience Builders, and what's it all about? Yeah, but we're we're an organisation that that help you know, groups, you know, various from kind of large corporations to small businesses, to schools, education, and individuals as well. 
it's really just providing the tools to add to their toolkit to help them kind of navigate when adversity and setbacks come on in life. And that, and that is inevitable. You know, I think that when we're exposed to discomfort, you know, how do we mitigate that, those, those challenges? So really what we've done is apply multiple different tools to help us kind of cope and keep that momentum in life. Because I'm a big believer that everyone has the right to kind of for them to actually flourish in life and have some joy in their life as well and positivity but we have to work hard at those things so really what we've done we apply a lot of evidence-based interventions the things that i've done in my lifetime really kind of that, that works well for me and for my athletes and coaches and people i've worked closely with that that we know that work and, and really it's not rocket science a lot of it's really basic things of doing it regularly becomes habitual so you can flourish in life and you can have that positivity and have have success in your life so and when you have have suffering for all that's we we can really we can learn from that and i think that's probably the things that i've when i have had moments where it's been really tough for me and the family we've kind of drawn upon these things we know that work we've actually kind of gone through it and then we've kind of come out through it which i think i want to share the same things with other people so they can actually have the same mm. you know kind of successes and happiness in life as well well just on that and tough times and that's an understatement of the interview probably but i wanted to ask you about the nick foundation because yeah, you know, you and your yeah. family certainly have been um, look smashed by tragedy. February twenty seven, two thousand and nine, and the sort of tragedy—tragedy. Tragedy, I can't imagine a worse one as a parent. But your oldest child, Nicholas, took his own life at the age of of twenty. So, what does the yeah. Nick Foundation? seek to do david yeah we've been really going for what well, hasn't been 15 years since he's passed it's coming up to 15 years this month you know look, well initially i had two really good mates and, and they're very good friends now that can look you know but we don't do enough for a lot of families and to really help them in this space this is 15 years ago so what we were doing is we were running you know we we're kind of running workshops around that and then we, we kind of walked into running you know theater productions for a lot of our youth in the community where my wife and then we kind of nephews who kind of directed the show. We had hundreds of kids come through that as well. Now we kind of really support our youth or young people with a parent to go on these kind of adventure programs, which can be life-changing for them, where they share an experience with their parent. Could be the Himalayas, could be Tassie, could be wherever where it may be, where they can learn, you know, the experiential stuff of, of dealing with adversity and then learn these resilience. So we fund we fund kids to come on and families to come on this type of stuff. So it's been so rewarding. We've come across a lot of families who've had their own kind of challenges as well, and it's helped us enormously and helped our our own family and our extended family as well. So look, it's running a charity is hard. It's not it's not easy, but um, you know we're only very very small, and you know we're kind of. We are running out of steam a bit, to be honest. It's a very small board, but we've had so much kind of fulfilment um, in being involved with the charity too. Yeah. So coming back to, I guess, that word resilience and, you know, your own situation with, with Nicholas, I mean, I would have no idea, but I'd, I'd imagine the natural inclination after these sort of things, you know, is to not talk about it, to, to stay strong <laughs> and all of that. But what comes out of being brave enough to share? Is it connection, that, that feeling or realisation that you're not alone in, in situations like this? Yeah, and, and when that happened, it was horrible, you know, kind of like in, in, when you lose it, particularly a child, there is that, that physical trauma of that as well. And I think the thing is that um, you, you pretty much want to desensitise your pain, you know, you just want to go in a cave and just hide there. And you realise, well, I've got three other children, I've got a wife, I've got work, I've got responsibility to myself and life. And we just... 
it was just a time where we had to rely on connection towards you know, family and friends, community. You know, the club at the time, Collingwood, were unbelievably supportive, you know. And I don't know how I would have gone if I didn't have that connection. I really probably would have struggled with that. And I think in a way that you've got to be vulnerable and you've got to be open to it. And the pain's still there, but the suffering, I suppose, has, has stopped. You, you learn to kind of deal with it. But it's healthy, it's healthy to talk about it because what happens, by, it's not about me it's about helping other people as well and you can kind of give them hope really in a way we've got to give hope to others particularly when people are struggling and then we remove that judgment as well you know particularly in that mental health you know i think when we do that we can we can support other people it was a very trying time and you know going back now i think that becomes a reference point for us going forward and what i mean by that i think we, we we've got through that as a family and the extended community friend, then yeah, we've got through that. Whatever comes, bring it on. We can we can get to the next one. It gives you confidence. Yeah, you've got you've got the evidence there. That, yeah, we've got through that. It was and it's tough. It was tough, and it was uh, you wouldn't wish that upon anyone. You know, and I'm not and I'm, and I'm not saying my step back was you know greater than anyone else's. It's all about that. Just but what it does, it does test your resolve and test your family, and particularly you know mate, the kids who are younger and seeing them go through that as well as very testing and challenging on them but and also too moving from what that's not easy but she's done extremely well too so kind of you see your own little inspirations in your family at times it gives you a lot of hope so we learned we learned a lot so it's pretty much what what built the actual resilience builders in my company that to support people and then they kind of transfers to other things in business and life as well it's quite it's quite powerful it is indeed yeah and, and you mentioned the testing I and mean, it would test you in every way possible I, I, I couldn't even uh, begin to imagine we're talking to David Butterfin here this morning on this is your journey it's all thanks to Tobin Brothers they're a family owned business and they have been since 1934 alright David Butterfin's footy journey <laughs> to Punt Road and the career he left footy behind for is up after this. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, great to have your company on This Is Your Journey, made possible by Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Renowned sports scientist and high-performance specialist David Butterfin is today's guest. So, David, like anything, before we get into or involved in sport, whether it be playing or admin or high performance, we have to love sport. Before it's business, it's fun. Was that always the case with you going back to your childhood? Absolutely. I love, love sport, love participating in sport, you know, whether it's track and field, whether it's, you know, Australian road football. And I was very fortunate, you know, get to choose your parents in life. And, and my parents really encouraged, you know, my siblings to be involved in sport and, and forever grateful that, you know, that I did kind of have a very strong appetite, you know, in, in, and I'm still very active today. And I kind of love being around kind of sport as well. So it's, it's um, yeah, you've got to love it. I think you've really got to love it. And you, what happens, you become invested and, and and then you become concerned about the work with it. It's just it's what it is. There's something you love. It's your kind of it's your why in life. You know what I mean? So yeah, yeah. It's something very very fulfilling. Where was home? Uh, I grew up in Northgate. Went to the local Catholic school and went off to Parade Bandura. Yeah, so played a lot of the junior sport. You know, for often dinner we were not there band, but in the Northgate Park Football Club. And I played in 
very fortunate to, you know, to kind of be involved in, in community sport growing up, which I found that that uh, the connection and uh, friendship amongst a lot of people I'm very fortunate to have. So insofar as your footy journey goes and your traits as a player, I saw you described somewhere yeah. as a strong marking utility and you, you mentioned <laughs> athletics before, so I was assuming you had a pretty good engine as well. Yeah. You might, heck, you might have even been ahead of your time as a player. <laughs> well, it was actually interesting. You know, we, we did run Harry's back in the day and we kind of, brothers and I, we all kind of, we ran, we did run A grade at a state level. It was kind of pretty much middle distance, 400s, 800s, yep. that sort of stuff. So it gave, it gave a pretty good uh, background and I was probably lucky to that point of view, but uh, I should have spent more time in my schools, I reckon. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, okay. I was going to say, we're, we're creating a nice picture of a player here until you mentioned the skills. So, but how did you actually find your way to Richmond? Because you spent a couple of seasons there, I think in 86 and 87. I did, I did. I originally was at Colin on 19 and you know, went down there, Keith Burns was coaching at the time and, you know, that didn't kind of end up as well. I would have liked and probably didn't have the maturity uh, at that time. Then after that, I kind of went into the uh, year at Country at, uh, in the Hampton League and then from there went into, into Richmond from there. So it was kind of it was, it was just the timing of it really and, you know, it's probably the, the, the sliding door moments that happens in, in, in your footy career and uh, look, you, know, you, you go into a system you think, oh, you're going to be there for, you know, six or ten years but it doesn't always happen, you know. It's, it's, but that's the things you kind of learn you know, a lot about. Usually the things that don't go well for you, they're things you can kind of, you know, kind of use and leverage upon and other things in life as well. So I was, I was quite, you know, quite fortunate to, to learn from those those kind of things that didn't go in my, you know, in my direction. But yeah, so from Caroid Football Club, went to Richmond Football Club. So when you think back, when, I mean, when you think of training methods and high performance or, or maybe even in this case, lack thereof back in those days, do you shake your head at how far how far the industry and, and, and it's all come? Enormously. I think I think that's the thing is that how far it, it's evolved, you know, I think the matter and the amount of staff that, mm. that, that clubs have now. I mean, really being able to kind of keep it kind of closely connected, which is a very important part. You know, so I think of, you know, very, very first, you know, few years at, uh, at North Melbourne, Norwich, you know, a shoestring kind of budget. And uh, I was part-time when I first started. I started there in 94. And then, you know, but then I went venture with full-time as a, as a fitness advisor, high performance manager at North Melbourne, the Dennis Pagan. And, and then the resources started to build. And, and then really I think now that, geez, the amount of staff that they have, it's just got to translate back into performance. It's interesting because people are passionate and in a day, business is elite and it's competitive. People want to win. And when you want to win, that leads to you know, innovation. So really in a way, you're kind of looking at ways to, because elite sport, the small percentages of shifts make a, make a big, you know, a big difference. That determines the livelihood of, of coaches, athletes, teams. You know, you look at how close we see you know, between winning and losing. It's only very, very small percentages. So you're looking at ways that can really um, enhance you know that performance and your brief time at Richmond I mean this was an era where you know the locker room the change room they partied hard and they played hard I mean the recovery back in those days mate the Sunday morning recovery would have been a couple of sips wouldn't it the hundred percent definitely you know they it's kind of in the old techniques you did a hundred hundreds and and the Saturday they had the Sunday the Sunday event on the next day it's kind of interesting but it's kind of I was probably born 10 years too too early I would have felt it would have been better you know 10 years or 15 years later yeah that's that, the social study but was, that was probably one of their strengths too, the social side of it. But as far as, far as the professionalism, no, probably didn't really hit, hit the mark to about another, you know, say 10, 10 years later, I'd say, you know, that's when it started to really kick in a bit. So as you said earlier, David, you were, I guess, by profession, you were a school teacher initially. So what drew you yeah. into the sports science world? I fell into, I fell into kind of PE teacher. I thought, oh, this is a good career play. I thought it'd be, you know, long-term player in the NFL, but, you know, but it didn't happen. And I thought, look, I love, I love my time 
Columbia was a PE teacher, taught at Broadmeadows at a place called Therry College, uh, now Panola College. So I enjoyed it. But then I, I just, there was something missing. I just needed to be challenged a bit more. So I went off and did some further studies, which, um, you know, I, I really kind of um, enjoyed and felt, felt challenged as well. So kind of, and then from there, kind of, that they kind of moved into, into you know, being more exposed to, to lead athletes. It was testing Olympic athletes back then in 91, 92 at Victoria University. And then an opportunity came knocking uh, back in 94. So there's an opportunity coming up at uh, North Melbourne. Would you be interested in having a chat to um, Dennis Pagan and Jeff Walsh? I said, hmm. yeah, I'd, I'd, be, I'd be really interested. Yeah, that's a, and then pretty much it kind of, that, that's where it kind of happened. So it's, it's quite fortuitous, really, how things kind of come at you in life. You know, I, I didn't, I mean, sports science wasn't really that big back in the early 90s. It was kind of, it was kicking off, but it wasn't, you know, really big in, in AFL. And then things it was had a bit, but then it's, it, it, that it really grew over the next 15, 20 years. So your title at North Melbourne was fitness advisor. I mean, you mentioned Dennis yeah, uh, Pagan earlier. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, hey, this was a, a golden era for that club. What, what are the memories like? Some yeah. of the names in the locker room there and oh, what was the experience like? I thoroughly enjoyed it. I was still keeping you know, in connection with a lot of those boys. And, you know, I was forever grateful for Dennis giving me that opportunity and Jeff Walsh as well. And it was tough. Like, it was tough, a tough environment. You know, it, it really, um, mm-hmm. it's, it's changed a lot. But, but they, were, they had a very good, very strong culture, a really a great winning culture as well. They had, had some talent there as well. It makes a bit of difference. But, but for, you know, they were as poor as church mice um, north at the time. And, and for what they were able to do, it was pretty impressive. It's the people. And, 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 I, and I caught up Dennis, you know, not long ago, really. And he said, really the key is you can have all the resources, but at the end of the day, the most important resource are your people. And that's so true. It's kind of like you've got to have the right people who are invested into others to help them succeed. And I think that club definitely had that. So your people are no different than business. You've got to have the right people who are invested or committed and accountable. You know, they're truly accountable for what their roles are as well. So and I really believe that, that North, the methodology they have is a, is a really kind of uh, you know, successful and proven one that worked for them. You know, they won two flags in the 90s. They, you know, they're very successful. They had multiple Premier League finals. So you, when you're up there and uh, you're a chance to win it, then they did. They did win it twice. Yeah. So and then uh, for you, I guess you were involved in the Sydney Olympics. That came next. But I, I wanted to ask you about yeah. Mick Malthouse and how and yeah. when did you first meet Mick properly? Interesting. It's kind of, like, it's kind of like when I was at the end of the Olympics, it's coming to the end, and you're you know, having four kids up in Sydney, and my wife Marie said, "Look, it's time for us to get back." And we had a few opportunities to come another club. Then Danny Laidley, you know, previous Dean Laidley, uh, who I worked with at North and is mm. currently working at uh, at Collingwood. She said, "Oh, butters, look." Um, would you be interested to have a chat to Mick and Barmy about it? There's a job opportunity coming. And I said, yeah, I'd love to have a chat. So I flew down and hooked up with Mick and hooked up with Barmy, both very family oriented. I said, hey, these guys, I'd like to work with. <laughs> so I thought that, you know, and, and it's quite opposite in, in personality, Barmy and Mick. I, I really enjoyed the conversation and I could really sense that they're on a path. I went home to Marissa, this is the club I'd love to work with. This is the family, the history as well. I thought, no, this is the fantastic opportunity. Once again, another opportunity for those and uh, had 13 years at the bike. Uh, it was a wonderful experience. So you hit it off with uh, with Mick and by extension Barmy. How, how would you describe your relationship with Mick and how it actually evolved? Because I, I suppose it's relatively rare, isn't it, Butters, in cutthroat professional sport to work so closely with the same person like you did for the better part of, well, it was almost 15 years by the time you factor Carlton in as well. Mick's got a great, he's a, a great thinker, Mick. He gave me autonomy and I think that was a thing. Working with him he was always he had the question which is really which he loved 
It's about problem solving that's going to increase productivity or performance. When you canvass things with him, he was able to kind of kind of synthesize information really well. And uh, and I love that that thinking process with him as well. You know, he was able to working with him. You felt I felt safe. I really felt safe in sharing and canvassing new concepts to him. And he he was quite bullish in, in, in embracing stuff like the altitude, the interchange. You know, when players needed to be offloaded, not really. You know, it was really good to work with. And I think in a way it gives you a license to become more creative. You know, to a point where you know driving performance, but you know, obviously the well-being probably plays the number one priority. But yeah, I think that's I think that with any kind of organisation, having that kind of that collaborative intelligence, and that's what he that's what he that he able to able to do. Um, yeah, and but he's a fierce competitor. Nick is a very fierce competitor, like um, which is which is great because that's what's that's where it enables you to strive and break through the ceiling at times of of, of performance. It wasn't mediocrity at all. It was actually far from that. So you, you, it created a little bit of discomfort. But I like that discomfort because it, it might it makes you accountable, but it makes you kind of grow. You're yeah. not going to sit back and say, oh, we're going for the most of it. No, it's not like that at all. You win one. I remember after winning in 2010, I reckon, I reckon five days later, we're on Bridge Road having a coffee together, planning our whole pre-season, going through what we need to do. And I thought, here we go. It doesn't stop me, does it? Yes, no, we're, we, we just keep going. <laughs> I really enjoyed. And I probably, I do miss that element of that, you know, that kind of that challenge in having a kind of working relationship with people. And it's not just myself. I had a big team underneath me. Mick had a big team as well. Working collaboration with there's a lot of people that pull it together. Yeah, you're only as good as people around you, I reckon, too. Good to hear that the media weren't the other people made to feel uncomfortable during his uh, his tenure either. He, he, as you, I know, I know. <laughs> as you would know, but as he had a lot of sayings, uh, the ox is slow, but yeah. the earth is patient. The Tibetan proverb was chief among them. And, and that was the name of the book that you co-authored with him in the end. I know, I had to let him run with that. So, uh, <laughs> no, it was, it was, he did have a lot of sayings. And he's very well read, Nick, for the deep philosophers, you know, that in life and history stuff it's you know, for a guy who's never went to university you know but he's very well read and it's quite interesting to listen to some of the stuff he come across so and and was able to kind of embed that into some you know into his approach and kind of coaching methodologies as well we're with former collingwood sports science director david butterfin on this is your journey it's all thanks to tobin brothers funerals celebrating lives we might elaborate on life at the pies with david next You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, we hope you're enjoying this week's edition of This Is Your Journey. As we count down to the 2024 AFL season, today's guest is sports scientist and high-performance specialist, David Butterfin. So, David, what are the foundations of being a successful high-performance or a sports science director at an AFL club? I mean, you're looking for peak performance, clearly, but I imagine also that, I mean, it's called the secret source in various sectors, like the, the almost spiritual connection needed to bring a group of, you know, individuals together from all sorts of different backgrounds and different mindsets into a team where only a United Collective Cohesion gives you a chance of success. How, how do you view that? That's a really interesting way you've, you've actually you know, portrayed that. It, it is There is a spiritual element to it. It's really understanding your people. And that's your staff and your players too. And I think once you really understand them, because you don't coach everyone the same way, you know, you think you, you do, but you don't. Because everyone's just got different communication styles, learning styles, and understanding. You've got different history as well. So you need to understand what makes them tick and then really provide 
providing the right stimulus that's going to evoke that change. And basically, when you're in that kind of position where you're driving performance, sometimes you have to help the athlete see a different perspective. Then that's what's going to help them grow. So really, in a way, you want to illuminate your performance. Oh, gee, I can, I can do this. Now, when they think they can do this and they actually can repetitively do it, they find this level of comfortability. I deserve to be here. I can do this. It's self-belief. But self-belief doesn't, it's not about looking yourself in the mirror and saying, I can do it. It's about practicing over and over again. And probably in times when it's challenging, but they build on the bank of evidence that I can do it and I can transfer this into performance. And that is one of the most fulfilling things you see in people when you can actually provide or facilitate that shift and that and you're shaping their behavior so they can really drive that performance. You need to connect to them. If you can't connect to them, it's so bloody hard. Gee, that's interesting. So just on individuals, like I'll use a current day scenario as an example. So Jake Stringer at Essendon and the omission from Brad Scott this week that, you know, he said Jake will never be a 10 out of 10 professional footballer, that they can only, Essendon being, can only nudge him in that direction. How did you mould guys like this back in your day, David? Because I'm assuming you would have had them. Did they need to rigidly conform or were yours and Mick's philosophy about embracing that individual Individuality. Yeah, definitely. Nick, Nick, Nick did that very, very well. And I think, in a way, you know, most elite athletes are intrinsically motivated. That they want now. You, you know, you can take the horse to water, you can't make him drink it. So, what it is, you've just got to somehow kind of, you know, foster, cultivate this kind of ability where they can push outside their comfort zone, that's where they're going to get the growth. It comes back to how much are they prepared, how much are they prepared to really kind of be exposed to discomfort to push themselves. Because it's not easy. And then that's and that's an all walks lot. You've got to really to drive performance, you need to be coached. You know, this is even the your greatest that they still need to be coached to a certain degree where you're giving them that directive and instructive feedback regularly. I mean everyone wants a positive feedback but 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 it's really through that instructive directive feedback and you're you're giving them another lens to look at themselves. So therefore, they're prepared to kind of stretch and, and push themselves. You've got to know. You've got to know them. And I reckon Mick, that was Mick kind of knew his athletes well and knew his staff pretty well. And I reckon when a player knows that and they realise, hey, I haven't quite got it yet. No, so for Stringer's point of view, he can. He may not be a ten yet, but he can get there. It comes down to how much you're prepared to really invest and commit yourself to that point. Mm, that yeah. comes. That comes down to a, an accountability in yourself and a discipline in yourself. We see players that get every bit out of themselves. They just rinse themselves the best they possibly can to make themselves a better player. Um, I'm sure. Th- I'm sure. But as the so-called Rat Pack gave you some headaches over time, though. Well, you know, it's interesting, and they were kind of falling in line because a lot of those guys were they were highly compliant and workers. You know, like, and I, you know, and I think of those guys. I think today, and I, you know, and I'm very fond of a lot of those guys. Um, that they were they were committed to it. They had a strong connection to each other, which is powerful. Yeah. Um. And they were very they were very loyal to one another as well. But they were when they were asked to work, they would work. They weren't they weren't you know kind of uh, showing avoidance, blame, excuses. That no, they were being they were taking ownership and responsibility. They were truly accountable in their behaviour. And I think that you know someone like Swanee was what you know made me betray. Yeah, he's pretty laid back and. They, but no, deep down under that, that layer, he was a fierce competitor. 
and at work. He are leading his training, and mm. he was so he was so committed. And I, and I, John, was the same. Dyak was the same. These guys, when you asked to do it, they would do it. They would empty out for you. And that's basically what you need to do. You need to have that relationship where they trust you to the point where you got to take them to that precipice. And sometimes you take them over that precipice where they get overreached. That's okay. That's how you push the kind of envelope a little bit. I enjoy work. But that's a great thing. You're not going to have all. <laughs> you're not going to have all quiet boys. You're going to have some alley cats in the way. That's such a great thing about our game. That, that diversity is very, very important. Yeah, understanding what they can bring and add value to to the actual organisation. So, as Collingwood peaked around this time, certainly around their 2010 flag, David, you, the club or the side revolutionised the game based on a frontal pressure method that we hadn't seen up until this time. So, Mick said that he took it. You were speaking about how well ready was. Mick said he took it from mm. the Roman Legion and also the German war figure Erwin Rommel. The box formation mm-hmm. and how difficult it is to penetrate for an opposition. What are your memories of this time and instituting this game plan? This is really interesting because that's one of the discussions I'd have with Mick often. You know, so tell me what your game plan is. What is what's your philosophy around, you know, that I need to understand so that way we can prescribe our training drills that's going to complement the game plan. And, you know, even talking in, in the great detail about the Creek kind of, you know, German offensive kind of assault they, they had. And really in a way, it's, it's kind of like it's how we play and, and that box formation as well. So it's like, right, okay, so let's let's make sure we've only got a certain a certain amount of hours per, per training session, let's make sure that the specificity of training really complements that. Therefore, it can transfer or translate into game day. It's those discussions which you kind of need to understand what he's thinking. What is he thinking? What does he want to execute? And then we get clarity around that. Players get clarity so they know how to actually execute the process and do it well. It's really interesting. It's kind of, it goes, yeah, it does go back to the Romans and it's seen in, in other kind of areas of, of warfare, which is kind of very affected with and applying in, into into football. Yeah. yeah. So what's the, what's the process here? Like, obviously, as you suggested there, Mick comes up with a plan, but you need to prepare the players to play, you know, what was a demanding and a relentless style? And and what? I'm, I'm assuming you need to assure him that you have the personnel to do it, or how does it all work in that regard? And that's interesting you say that, because basically with um, you know, with a game plan like that, is, that is a high level of intensity. So if you don't train like that, then you're fraught with danger. It, you know, become pretty Dispose of stop tissue injuries, and I think initially it might have happened with this in you know, early early two thousand, you know, one two thousand two. We we had a bit of a spate of OP, and that's probably not, not uncommon amongst a lot of the clubs. Just the, the the sheer intensity and volume and ball the ball workload that we did, but we had to do that to adjust. And what happens over time, adaptation takes effect and then you become more efficient with it. And then when you become more efficient with it, then you start to get that kind of competitive advantage. Because other clubs that try to emulate that, they're always going to be behind you because you're going to keep refining and get better at, at doing that as well. You need to communicate and then it's that often, so often in, in, in high performing teams, what's important you need to talk about what's not working well. And this is interesting. We see that in businesses that sometimes aren't prepared to do that. You need to talk about what's not working well, and then you refine through reviewing. Um, then you can put a very good prescription model in place, being able to discuss what's not working well, what do we need that, that's going to have impact, and then you trial, you'll trial it and see this is actually starting to have influence and it's starting to the ship, but there's an element of patience as well. Yeah, the ox is patient, of course. But it must be enormously gratifying to see when it does, when the penny does drop, though, as a collective, and you can see it working right in front of your eyes, I'd imagine. That's the thing is when you do see, particularly 
athletes that they come in, they're young. They're just very young. They're emotionally very they're young as well. But you see them mature over overnight, and you think, gee, they're, they're maturing into good people. Now, that's probably one of Nick's mottos too. Is that, you know, they come in the system, but they come out um, as a better person. I think when you see that, it's, and I see a lot of these guys today and marry or kids that are doing well in business, and I'm really quite chuffed. You know, I love you know hearing that you know, yeah, they've actually applied some of these things in, into their daily life as well. So yeah, it is really quite fulfilling. It, it's not just winning flag. It's just it's more than that. It's a lot more sophisticated than that. When you see yeah. the growth in people, it's very very rewarding. You know, and I think what happens you see that that, that inspires you as well. It kind of it, it, it actually motivates yourself being involved. Now the other thing that endures for me anyway from this era, David, is Collingwood's rampant interchange bench use, and it looked like an ice hockey game at times down on the sidelines. How how did that approach originate, and and how did it help you gain an advantage over you know seemingly everyone else? I remember in 2007. Halfway through the year, uh, I had a discussion, and Guy McKenna was in the, in the meeting as well. Nick says, "Look, we've got to get him fitter, but it's just kind of we, we, at the moment we're just kind of just going to fall over lines, come into finals, and we'll peter out." And I said, "Nick, well, mate, we're not going to really get him fitter now. If we do that, we, we could we potentially could regress, you know." Yeah. So I said, well, "Let's have a look at some things that we could do." So what happened was we looked at other sports, and we and then I remember Guy McKenna himself looked at. Uh, ice hockey and they have, have uh, change on the fly so that it's a highly as you know in a high cycle it's a frenetic pace and it, the speed is, is very very sustainable so look why don't we do that why don't we why don't we start getting our drills our small side of game and involve rotation start educating players that hey, you still play the same amount of game time but we're going to ramp up your uh, intensity but what are we, what we're able to do is that we can actually minimise the actual fatigue by getting a breather on the bench and coming back on. So we trialled that for about, oh, it would have been seven or eight games. We started to really notice the shift. And going, we are probably averaging about, I can't remember, I think it would have been about 40 five to 55 interchange in the game. Going into the finals, then we started ramping up well over 80 to over 90. And then we played a final over in West Coast uh, and it was a drawn final and we had 110. And, and Mick goes, how are they holding up? I said, Mick, they're going really well. They're up and down. I looked over across the West Coast and they looked, they looked like they were tongue on a bit. So anyway, we in overtime, we won the game and went across and then back to Melbourne and played Long in the Pullman final. Once again, had high rotation, and we could have you know, gone all the way. We just didn't win that game. But we realised, hang on, that this is going to give us a competitive advantage. We're going to keep working on it, keep educating players, getting feedback from the players. How do we get better at this? What do we need to do? And then monitor which players need more rotation than other players. And then we started cranking up to about 140, 150. <laughs> and really, the speed of the game, like it, it had enormous influence on some of the players. And Dane Swan comes to mind. He still played his 85% game time, but he impact very very hard to tag but he could he could keep his foot on the on the pedal um keep that level of intensity up as well and then the AFL didn't like it for whatever reason they kind of gave some some reason about injuries are going up which is the opposite we found our research injuries went down for us we actually we, we saw a significant shift that were able to look after our, our players um yeah it was quite interesting there's a lot of you know a lot of the other high performance managers we had discussion around that we weren't comfortable with the AFL shifting you know the actual interchange and bringing it back because it was you know the game was in good state as far as the speed of the game and the injuries we were able to manage the, the, the load of players with the rotation as well. It, it really got a lot of air time and really in a way, you know, if there was a reason behind that and, and the priority was the central well-being of the players, give us the evidence.
but there's no evidence to support that. They capped it, know. I think, initially at 120, didn't they, in 2014? They've obviously had a couple right. of cracks at it since then. Um, gee, yeah. there were some great stats from the 2009 season. You, you mentioned Dane Swan. He was actually the most bench player in the AFL that year, but he had the most disposals in the comp, and he won the BNF as well. Well, I think that, and that, that in itself tells us something. Do you know what I mean? I think that's one of the things. I wonder how, we, how we'd go today. I mean, would we say, see the same explosiveness? You know, but what we want to see is, as supporters, you want to see your, your players playing for longer and playing with a quality uh, that they can execute as well. Yeah, it really kind of it, it, it surprised me why they, why they did shift that. Now, I couldn't understand the rationale behind in moving that as well. Now, whether aesthetically didn't like, you know, the runner going out, there were players coming on off the ground, but it's all about the quality of the game as well. So it's, it's, a, it's a fast old game. You're listening to This Is Your Journey. It's thanks to Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. And there's more to come with David Butterfant right after this. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. It's been great to have your company here on This Is Your Journey. It's all thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. We've had the company today of an expert in elite athlete preparation, former Collingwood and Carlton sports science and high-performance guru, David Butterfin. So, David, the phenomenon that became the high-altitude preseason camp. Now, no one was doing it, and then seemingly overnight, everyone was doing it. But the Pies were the first to do it, maybe 2006, and you are credited with pioneering this training method in the AFL. But what are its origins? Did I get the timeline right? And how did this idea come into your brain? Yeah, I mean, Elvis has been around for quite a yep. long time and, and, and it's used rapidly now, you know, in, in a lot of elite athletes, you know, particularly as cyclists, swimmers, and all around the world, they still use altitude training. You know, we, we saw what happened back in many years ago, back in Mexico City, that 1968, you know, all the world records happened, but then all the endurance you know, affected. So what happens when we go to altitude, there's some enormous physiological um, changes that occur. I had a month over in Flagstaff, Arizona, with uh, you know, quite a few of the Australian swimmers going into into Sydney Olympics. So firsthand, I was you know, me- you know measuring and monitoring athletes very very closely with the coaches, and I could see significant shifts, performance and physiological benefits associated. You know, so I thought, and I remember 2004 and 2005, and we kind of played it out. We didn't have a great season those years, and I was at Mick, and look, we, this is something that could really give us an advantage. You know, I really believe going into pre-season, it will give us some foundation. It will give us some you know that psychological kind of. Uh, strength as well and bonding you know being over there for two and a half three weeks we pitched it to to ed and, and the, the support of eddie boy you know he, he said look okay let's let's do it so it's so we're really kind of fortunate to be able to do that and then we had you know multiple seasons pre-season we were able to go across the to altitude and 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 do this and we and we measured our plays pre and post and we saw some significant shifts you know and one of the questions oh does it last where you know look, it's really what it does in that period of time in that three-week period it it takes you five or six weeks of pre-season to get the same adaptations. So we're able to look after our players, do more footy-specific stuff, get some physiological benefits, and then go into the season up and going. But it became a really strong reference point. Some of the things that we were able to do and push them to the point where of this comfort and kind of like, oh, they can draw 
upon this. This is what's going to build their kind of their and galvanise their unity amongst them, um, but also give them a self belief that when it does get tough, you just hang in there, hang in there, hang in there. And that's one of the things the benefits we're able to kind of get that was that was lasting. Um, the physiological benefits, you know, we increased red blood cell hemoglobin max. We're able to shift that, and you can sustain it for a bit longer because we had an altitude room as well, so we're able to kind of hold that for a period of time too. But the benefits, I think, from a club when you're in a training camp and you can control your sleep, your nutrition, your loading, and there's minimizing distraction you you get an enormous benefit from that as well. The resources, yeah, a bit of resources spent into that program. But what we did as well, we we invited some of our corporates to join us, and they, they and through their their generous kind of they joined the program, but it subsidised a fair bit of our of our program as well, which made a lot easier on the club. But then the soft cap come in, and and then they <laughs> limited and inhibits the opportunity to do stuff like that, it makes it a lot lot harder. But the boys today still talk highly, even though at times it looks just as bloody hard work, but they still talk highly of how, how powerful those, those camps can be in bringing people together, bond. Because you can train mm. with people, but when you really have that time with people one-on-one, you get to know their stories, you get to know them, and then you get to share the vulnerabilities. Because when you're doing stuff, when you're snow and the cold and the harsh elements of the environment and the perceived risk, it, it builds trust. And, and it, that's something where... It's pretty hard to do in pre-season back at back at, uh, at Lexus Centre, it was called then. But yeah, it's, it's hard. It's hard to do that. Whereas you go somewhere, it's something special. There is that, that spiritual element of social connection uh, and belonging, which is very powerful. Your, your time in the AFL was such an interesting time for your profession. Like Andrew Dimitriou called you guys phys editors, and that you basically needed. Well, I think he basically said you need to stay in your lane, and that the league was clearly worried about you guys having too much influence. I think he famously said once, "Phys editors don't overrule." doctors. Was there a feeling at all uh, Butters that the walls were closing in in the latter stages of your time at, at Collingwood and then Carlton? It wasn't for me but I think a lot of the high performance managers took umbrage to that. You know there was a lack of ignorance from that comment you know the, what it is. You know the, a lot of these guys are highly qualified and they would never overrule a doctor. I mean you work in collaboration we'd respect the doctor's decisions and, if, and you work, that's their role. That's where, that's where you're going to give them charge of. But working in teams from your, from your physios your doctors, your, you know, your, your dietitians, your stress edition coaches, mm. you work as a team, you've got to get the best. What you want is the best out of the athlete. And really in a way that improves the athlete, you're going to improve the game. So it's kind of like, no, it's, it's, it's not, we're not kind of separate silos. It didn't, it didn't happen like that. You weren't restricting ball. Where people would talk about, oh, I can't do more goalkeeping. That is their craft. That's what they have to do. They have to work. Basically, it's working and it's, and, and at times compromising what is the best model to get the best outcome on the athlete. And that's from coaches. It's really kind of, it shouldn't be called phys or sports. It's really, it, it should be called sports performance. That's what it is. Yeah. It's getting the best out of the, out of the team and out of the individual. So it's all the other performance managers, and then in there they are invested. They want the best out of their, their players. So they're they're not overruling what I have been saying. They're not overruling doctors, and they, and they wouldn't be overruling coaches. You, you you work in collaboration to drive that performance. So not long after those comments, of course, the Essendon supplement saga blew up, and. I wondered, I wanted to ask you, in this country, did you fear when that Essendon stuff happened that your industry was going to have its reputation tarnished or that you were going to be oh, viewed yeah. more suspiciously? Yeah, look, that, that did. Unfortunately, it kind of painted us a bad brush. You're really in a way... It, it was difficult because you, know, you only have one, you know, one that happens at one organisation. It doesn't mean all of us have gone that path. You know, I think that's an integrity point of view. You know, that you've got the central priority is the well-being of, of the athlete, and if, if and it can't be great, it's either, it's either black 
or it's white. And it's, it's that evidence base that look at things that's going to have an influence. And look, I had the, had the opportunity to work with those ethnic guys in their, in their 12 months off, you know. So those, I had the, the 12 months with those guys training at the Burners College in Eston. And, and wow, was that an experience just kind of watching them, how difficult it was for them, you know. And, and, and to their credit, the way they, they, they conducted themselves, it was just um, very impressive. And, you know, some of them are still playing today. That year, I learned so much about board science, about myself, about what players go through. Hopefully, that never happens again at an yeah. AFL club. But you have to, you've got to push sometimes to become innovative. But yeah, it was a, it was a very interesting time where a lot of clubs probably got nervous and, and pushing and pushing kind of that, that competitive advantage and to be innovative. Two very quick ones, Butters, before we let you go. And admittedly, these are going to put you on the spot. You've overseen some superstars of the game, you've seen how they've all prepared. Mm. I need a best trainer, best preparer. Wayne Carey was super impressive. Like he could, in the gym, he was impressive lifting. On the track, he was really whole lifting. You know, he was, had the endurance as well. Really impressive. Chris Town, Dane Swan, really both impressive. Paul McCurry's work rate, his appetite to really um, have a crack. The other one too, which is probably a bit biased and saying, but you know, Eddie, Ed Kerno, like his, his work rate, his ability to grunt, they just never complained, got on the track and, and, and did the work. You know, these guys come to mind, they just could get it done and they're able to produce at a high level. And I think over time, Scott Pendleby, another one, a long time side bottom, another one, they just keep rocking up and keep doing it and they, sh- they show through their longevity they can sustain it. David Butterfin, awesome to catch up with you. I mean, obviously the players and the coaches and some others may have taken, you know, the bulk of the public acclaim, but there's no doubt you played a huge role in your team's successes in your time at Sports Elite level. You needed to earn trust and respect. Clearly you got both from the athletes you were in charge of and now the people, obviously, as we've discussed, that you engage with for Resilience Builders. So well done on all you've done and continue to do, and thanks for sharing your story with us. Good on you, Sam. It's been, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to This Is Your Journey for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Make sure you jump online to find them at tobinbrothers.com.au and we'll catch you the next time we celebrate another great sporting journey.